Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or a trophy master. So this week on 40 Card College, there are a ton of new videos. Specifically, there's two new draft videos up where we go through every single play, every single pick. It's all edited and streamlined. And then also there are three streams from this Thanksgiving week that you can check out. There's the Twitch link as well as YouTube links in the description. So you can check out all those videos and hopefully level up your game at your leisure. What we're going to be doing on today's show is we're going to be looking at why the aggro decks in Brothers War are so good, and also specifically why blue decks so far have been underperforming. So we're going to get to that as well as I'm going to explain what the current top overrated and underrated cards are and explain the thinking process behind how we got to those numbers as well. And it's something that can be updated going forward. We can look at the format as it evolves and see are the same cards being over and underrated. So that'll be interesting once we get to that. Before we get to that, we have a question of the week this week submitted by patron Rossimo. Rossimo asks, how often do you build a deck with 16 lands? And when do you decide to use less than 17 lands? So I think this is a wonderful question, especially for Brothers War, because... This format is one where you often are playing 16, sometimes even 15 lands. And it kind of, there's two reasons why you would play fewer lands. The first one is that in best of one on arena, there's a hand smoother. So the way that the hand smoother works, to the best of my knowledge, is that arena secretly draws two seven card hands and is going to pick the one that is closer to the ratio of lands in your overall deck. And so that way you're going to have a functional hand most of the time. Now, what does that mean in terms of actually building your deck and what that looks like? Well, if you build a 17 land deck like normal, then 42.5% of your deck is made up of lands. And if we extrapolate that to a seven card hand, on average, about 2.9, almost three cards of those seven are going to be lands on average. And obviously, sometimes it's gonna be less, sometimes more. But what that means is that you're often going to see a three land hand at that percentage. Now, if you go down to 16 or even 15 lands with that hand smoother, you're actually going to still see three land hands more than any other mix of lands and spells. So in best of one, you can actually reduce your land count down to 16 or 15 as long as you can operate off of two or three lands pretty well because you're going to have those types of opening hands where you don't have to mulligan them as much more often. The problem is you can't really necessarily extrapolate this as far in best of three because you don't have that hand smoother. And so you're only going to see the one hand that you've drawn and you're not going to get the two shots at a better ratio of lands to spells. So when you reduce your lands, you're going to draw you know fewer in those single hands in best of three more often to the point that you're actually gonna have to mulligan more. So shaving a land is actually kind of free. Like most decks, as long as they can operate on that three lands for a few turns, then they're probably going to want to run 16 lands in best of one. When playing best of three, it's still probably better to default to those 17 lands. Because when you do mulligan, I believe the last time I checked on that math, it was impacting your win rate by about like 15%. So those games, it's really hard to win after a mulligan. 
So it's better to have a few more lands to have functional hands in best of three, or as you can get away with it in best of one, because secretly Arena is looking at two different hands most of the time, you're going to have a hand that has between like two and four lands in it. And most of those you're just going to keep in the general sense of the time. Now, in addition to that, the reason I say it's a little bit more interesting in Brothers War Limited specifically is that there's a lot of effects that make it more capable to shave lands. The first is that curves in Brothers War are just lower in general. Because it's an aggressive format, you're really incentivized to put like one drops, two drops, three drops in your deck. And so what that means is you can function off a two land hand for quite a while. Like if you don't draw your third land until turn five, in most limited formats, that's kind of a disaster. Your opponent's playing three and four drops and you're just stuck playing two drops. The thing is, you'll have enough cards to be able to play while being stuck on those couple lands that you might be able to play two drop, two drop, two drop and trade with your opponent's twos and then maybe like their three drop as well. And then once you get to your third land, you can still keep playing the game. Whereas a lot of the times in some other sets, that just won't be the case. You won't be able to affect the board enough, have a low enough curve to keep up with what your opponent's doing there. So lowering the curve also means that you can play 16, often even 15 lands in your best of one decks more readily. If you have a low enough curve in best of three as well, where you have more of those like one, twos, and threes, I still recommend maybe going down to 16 lands because you can function off those two lands more frequently. You have to mulligan fewer hands at that point. Whereas if you can't function off fewer lands, then you always just kind of want to stick with that 17 land base. And in some formats, although it's rare, if you have like a ton of activated abilities and the format's slower, you might even want to go to like 18, 19 lands because you have to mulligan even less than that. We often have like a three or four land hand and you're going to be able to make use of all that extra mana later in the game. So really it's a function of the best of one smoother um, and what the format looks like. On top of those lower curves, there are quite a few cards in Brothers War that lets you play fewer lands in addition to having your lower curve. So things that smooth out your draws like Scrapwork Mutt that let you rummage, Stern Lesson, which let you loot into making sure that you hit your land drops, especially like your four and five mana range spells, in addition to getting Power Stones, allows you to kind of cheat on your mana a little bit. And anything that cantrips and draws you an extra card. So like, you know, the retro artifacts like Elsewhere Flask, they come into play, they draw you an extra card. All of that, enough of those effects. Like, let's say you have three effects on two mana that draw you a card. You can probably go down a land at that point because you're going to get to see just that many extra cards to help you find like your third land drop on time, kind of regardless of the format. So if I was playing kind of just a normal looking deck, but I had like three cantripping spells on on two mana i'd probably go from 17 down to 16 lands because and, and it's especially true in a synergy format because you want every single piece of cardboard you draw to interact with your synergies if your lands don't interact it's a little bit of a problem where you could have included something to maybe sacrifice and power up your synergies versus a land just sitting there and if you're able to have extra mana through power stones it also incentivizes actually fewer lands because you're less likely to flood at that point and the power stones can make up for the fact that you don't actually have quite as many lands in play um, as you would under normal circumstances so all in all it's a pretty complicated question 
of when to cut lands. What I would say in terms of the actionable advice for this set in particular is that when you're playing best of one, you should probably default to 16 lands. If you're a little bit of a slower deck, more mid-range, then I would still probably play 17, especially if you have like lots of four and five drops. But a lot of the decks in Brothers War play a lot of two and three drops. In those decks, I would just default to 16. And if you even go lower on your curve, you have like lots of ones and twos, and you're okay not hitting your third land drop on time in some games, you could even play 15 lands. Because if if you're making up for uh, not hitting your land drop with having extra cards to play on the cheap that all synergize together, plus like rummaging and looting effects, you can actually get away with 15 lands a lot of the time in this format in particular. I will note that if you take the hand smoother into account, if you go all the way down to 14 lands, that's now 35% of your deck construction. When you look at that in a seven card hand and sort of multiply those numbers together, on average, you're going to see about 2.45 lands per hand. And so actually, when you get to 14 lands, then the hand smoother algorithm, I believe, starts to prioritize two land hands over three land hands. And most limited decks are going to function much, much better when they have three land hands, even the really, really hyper aggro decks. So once you get down to that 14 land range, I don't really recommend that in best of one unless you have like a super crazy extreme example, especially because, like I said, we do have those hand smoothers like Scrapwork Mutt, those cards that help you either hit extra lands or get rid of extra lands. So I think the benefit of using the hand smoother in best of one more than makes up for the fact of having more awkward draws when you go down to 14 lands. So I've seen some posts where people are playing like 12, 13, 14 lands with like all one drops and like these crazy is it spells decks. And I think those decks probably should be playing 15 lands rather than going down to like 14 or 13 lands, even when your curve is that low. So hopefully that helps you kind of decide when you want to go to 16 lands in the future. Again, I would kind of default to 16 in this format, 17 and best of three. If your curve is low enough, 16 and best of three is still fine as well. And then 15 lands and best of one if you have enough one and twos and also hand smoothing cards to help you out there. All right, before we get to our main topic, I want to quickly just mention the Patreon. So this show, this project, 40 Card College, is 100% supported uh, by listeners, by patrons, But all the content will always be free, so never donate if you feel like it would impact you financially. There's a bunch of free ways to help 40 Card College. You can leave a review on your podcast of choice. You can follow on the various channels like Twitch or YouTube. You can tell a friend. Like, that helps us a lot. You can check out our free Discord and just kind of hang out in the community. And, you know, we're there. We're doing, you know, pick one, pack ones. Uh, we're talking about what we think about the format on a daily discussion. We're we're posting our trophy pictures. So it's an awesome place to be. Just, again, all those links are in the show notes. So you can check it out there. And then also one of the perks of being a patron is that when you first join the Patreon, you get a shout out on this very show. So this week, I'd like to shout out Marius. Sorry if I get that wrong. So Marius, uh, thank you so much. Um, and on to our main topic. So our main topic is kind of split into two different sections this week. The first, I want to talk about why blue is so bad in my experience in Brothers War. First of all, if you can, you really want to be, I think, in the Naya colors, or if you're going to be black, uh, like an aggressive deck that has still a low curve. So you can build like black, white, three cost matters decks. You can build black, red sacrifice decks. But if you're not in those two decks, 
I'd really recommend trying to stick to like these Naya aggro colors. The reason is that the power level of the cards in Brothers War is relatively flat and doesn't scale across increasing mana values. So the two and three drop cards on power level are almost as good as some of the like four and five mana cards. And on top of that, there's a lot of really, really efficient removal. So for the five and six and seven mana plays that are a lot better, the aggro decks still have answers to them, like in the form of prison sentence, which can just blanket answer anything. Maybe after a few trades, overwhelming remorse can answer anything for just a few mana. There's go for the throat, which is cheap. There's power stone fracture, which is cheap. Shoot down is a little bit more expensive, can, but can answer almost all the big bombs in the format. So when you include these types of cards in your deck, Epic Confrontation can help, you know, trade up on mana as well. When you include these types of removal spells in your deck, while you're assertive, it helps you get further ahead. But a lot of them, it doesn't allow you to catch up as easily because you're spending all your time to try to catch up on the board. So you'll play a five drop when you're behind only to get it answered by these cheap cards and you're even further behind. In addition, a lot of the removal spells specifically are a lot worse in control decks. If we look at Prison Sentence, um, the Scry 2 on Prison Sentence is much, much better in an assertive deck because oftentimes you're not looking for your fifth land drop in those types of decks. But if you play Prison Sentence in a little bit of a slower deck that wants to hit six, seven, eight mana, the Scry 2 is not going to be as valuable because while you might not want lands in that exact moment, Later in the game, you might still want to draw into lands. So it's very difficult to know, like, do I keep a land on top versus not? Whereas in a more assertive deck, you're almost always going to scry lands to the bottom, keep spells on top. That's just like one example. Another one, if we look at Power Stone Fracture, that's the one in a black, destroy target creature or planeswalker. In additional cost, you have to sacrifice a creature artifact. Sacrificing a creature artifact is a much, much bigger cost in the slower decks, unless you're able to set it up with some of those cheap cantripping artifacts. Because the aggressive decks have those really cheap cards, they're already on the board and they have things to throw away that they don't care about to be able to push damage. You're basically trading extra resources to be able to push damage. Whereas in slower decks, you just don't want to be down on resources because you're actually taking damage to be up on resources. That's the exchange you're making when you say you're going to play a slower deck. You initially take more damage to then be up cards and be able to win the game through attrition. Basically, Magic in Limited exists on the axis of aggression, where you're trading resources to deal damage, to more attrition-based strategies, which take damage to be up resources, and then there's everything in the middle. The thing is that the cards in this format really highlight more of that aggressive stance, where you can choose to trade off resources to deal damage because everything else in the format actually incentivizes that as well. One thing is that unearth cards really, really, really work well with this plan because you can trade off like your scrap work cohort, that four mana three one that unearths for two and a white. You can trade that off and then bring it back. You get to deal another three damage, you get another body. So yeah, you're down the card when it trades, but you're not even down that full card. So you're able to trade but you're not even trading the full amounts of cards oftentimes in these aggressive decks again if we go back to our example of power stone fracture that black removal spell if you're able to play that card in an aggressive strategy you can often pair it with a token or something that's a little bit cheaper or it's not worth a full card and so yeah you're you're trading 
your resources to push damage, but you're not trading as many resources as you might otherwise. So you kind of want to keep that in mind. Oh, in addition, if we look at prison sentence locking down a creature, in addition to the scry two being more beneficial in aggressive decks, that card sitting around longer, longer, longer allows the opponent to be able to find a way to abuse it, either sacrifice the creature, bounce the creature, find a disenchant for the prison sentence. In an aggressive deck, you don't give your opponent that time, right? You're playing it, you're getting your value right away, you're attacking your opponent. The game has significantly shortened in terms of how many turns are left in the game when you play that kind of card. In a slower deck, you're playing prison sentence so your opponent can't attack you. But that just allows them to find time to eventually be able to deal with the prison sentence and or potentially get value off the card and two for one you. All that to be said, I've named a lot of cards that aren't blue. Blue, as a color in this format, is very much slow, methodical, not that impactful. A lot of the cards play from behind. So you have to have reasons to be able to catch up when you're playing blue decks. And otherwise, these aggressive decks are just going to attack you, attack you, attack you. And then when you do play something that is supposed to stabilize you, it might not actually get you to where you need to be. In addition, blue is very kind of combo oriented where you're trying to, you know, get a bunch of power stones online to pair with other colors that care about power stones. It plays into the ramp space. It plays into Might Stone's animation, which is the four mana aura that makes your artifacts into four fours. So you have to combo off getting an artifact you don't care about dying into play immediately. So if you can pair blue with other colors to continue to be aggressive and find the types of blue cards that work with that, I think it actually can be a pretty good color. For example, Stern Lesson is two and a blue to, to draw two and discard and you get a power stone. So Stern Lesson is just an excellent card overall. But it plays even better in some of these aggressive strategies. Like if you can play Stern Lesson into a Might Stones animation and keep attacking. Like if you're playing Stern Lesson with Third Path Iconoclast, the blue-red 2-1 that when you play a non-creature you get a 1-1. If you're playing that in a way where it is kind of more on that assertive bent, then you're able to apply pressure early, continue applying pressure and then have answers for what your opponent's doing. Whereas if you play Stern Lesson from behind, oftentimes in conjunction with like counter spells, your opponent gets under the counter spell, and then you have these awkward choices where it's like, I really want a Stern Lesson on three, but if my opponent plays something I need to interact with, I've put this counter spell in my deck, so they play the card while well, I better just counter it because my counter is only going to get worse over time. And then you didn't play the Stern Lesson, now you're behind. You can't really play Mindstone's animation in that spot because, you know, you're, you didn't get the artifact online that you needed from it. So when you're reacting to what your opponent's doing, when already in a position from being behind in the format, it makes it incredibly difficult to catch up. In addition, blue decks are kind of st stuck in this awkward spot where they need to be able to answer, like they need to stop the aggression, but they also need to stop the opponent's bombs in this format. It is a very bomb-heavy format, but the bombs are kept in check because of the assertive nature of the format. The assertive decks can just attack and don't actually care about what the bombs are that their opponents are doing. There are some that are actually really hard to interact with, but all the ones that are just permanent based where they're putting a worm coil engine into play and that's kind of the, the poster child of the bombs. And most actually the aggressive decks can still often have the answer to that card and keep on attacking. Maybe they can fly in the air to deal the last few points of the damage by the time the worm coil has come down. But even other threats, the aggro decks can just kind of attack 
passed or just use a removal spell on it. The blue decks are kind of stuck in this awkward spot where they have to play catch up against these more aggressive decks, but then they still have to deal with these big bombs like Wormcoil Engine that they need to be ready for. And it's hard to do both those things. Like, yes, blue has, you know, weak stones animation that they could play to lock down the Wormcoil Engine. But unless you're being aggressive, we run into the same problems we talked about before, where if, you know, that's just sitting there turn after turn after turn, eventually the opponent's going to be able to maybe sacrifice it, bring back their bomb with, uh, you know, a reanimation spell. There's all these different ways for things to go wrong the longer you intend the game to go. And so it's easier uh, to be on the level one and just attack your opponent. So I think like Brothers War is just like attacking the opponent, the format. I personally have a lot of experience with this because I started, I tried to do all the sweet things in the format. I had all these like crazy blue decks that were just drawing all these cards, doing all these combos, all this kind of stuff. But like I just got attacked and I just kept losing. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm building my decks wrong. I don't know if I'm approaching this the wrong way. But it just turns out the format just does not incentivize um, these really aggressive decks. In addition, there's really, really, really good cards in the aggressive decks that a lot of other people don't want and slash don't know are actually good yet. So we're going to get to the underrated cards later on. But if you know that there's these underrated cards that are aggressive that people aren't taking, you're in a really good spot to just take that those cards while people are not picking them up. Eventually, we might get to the point where the format actually expands and people start to realize that the bad-looking aggressive cards are actually really good. Those start to get taken higher. And if that happens, then this may be an example of like an expanding format. In episode two, we talked about this metagame shift theory where there's kind of three types of metagames that can form over the course of a format. We talked about sort of the shrinking metagame where everything seems viable, but eventually only a few strategies actually are good. We talked about the typical strategy, which is like V-shape, where everything is open in the beginning, then people figure out what's good, so everything constricts. And then over time, uh, once more people catch on, those niche strategies begin to emerge to fight the dominant strategies, and everything expands back open towards the end. At the beginning of the Brothers War right now, there's really only one dominant strategy, and that is these assertive decks. So I don't see a V-shape forming uh, in this format because it's not open to begin with. So if anything, it's just going to stay aggressive the whole time. Or, like I said, if these aggressive decks start to be sort of... Um, worsened by the self-correcting nature of draft over time then uh, we could see this expansion and some of these slower decks actually could get their time in the sun because when the opponents can't just curve out with these crazy one drop two drop three drop crazy curves that are also synergistic on top of just being curve outs and being very powerful then it's okay on these slower blue decks to maybe play it wait till turn two or three to play a card to interact. I think a good example of a card that is kind of awkward, even though it seems pretty powerful, is Coastal Bulwark. So Coastal Bulwark is a two mana artifact creature. It's the one three with Defender, and you can pay two and tap to Surveil, and it gets plus two plus zero oh if you control an island. This is like the perfect type of card that stops these aggressive decks, slows them down, and that's still true, that exists. The problem with this type of card goes back to, again, 
it does nothing against the decks that go bigger, the decks that are focused on bombs. And not everyone right now is playing the all-in aggressive decks. A lot of people are, but it's a lot easier to just play those overpowered decks right now than try to play something attacking the metagame this early into the format. If everyone, and I mean like mostly everyone, that's playing is trying to play aggressive decks, then all of a sudden Coastal Bulwark becomes a lot better. But even in those spots, you still have to deal with the bombs. I think this defensive strategy, trying to be slower, just does not work great. That being said, like I was talking about, if everyone is slowing down, then we can look at those types of cards, put, play the Coastal Bulwark, maybe play some more counter spells. That way you're answering the aggression. You're also answering whatever bombs happen to come down. But that might be like a week four, five, six strategy. And so we'll just have to see in time if we actually get to that point. For now, I recommend <laughs> don't play blue unless it's blue-white or blue-red. Because those are the two blue decks that can actually be really assertive, really aggressive. And blue is really more the supporting member of those aggressive pieces to whatever the other color is complementing. And the most aggressive colors in the format are white, red, and green. The reason I don't mention blue-green as being a recommended deck is that blue-green specifically is interested in the ramp half of green. And I think that is definitely a failing strategy these days. So that's my little spiel on avoiding blue on the state of the format right now. Draft your good unearthed creatures. Draft your scrapwork cohorts. Draft your scrapwork mutts, that 2-1 that helps rummage. And then one drops, two drops, three drops, the format, removal spells, and combat tricks. Now, rather than talk about every single specific card like we did um, last week in terms of those aggressive strategies, I want to look a little bit here as to overrated and underrated cards, and specifically the underrated cards, because this is where you're going to get a lot of your equity in the format this coming week. So this section of this podcast is inspired by work done by Redditor Doragon. Um, I came across uh, Doragon's post and I thought it was really interesting what they did to take the data from 17 lands and then extrapolate it into overrated versus underrated cards. So the theory behind it actually makes a lot of sense. So what, what Doragon had done was rank every single card in the set by ALSA. So ALSA is average last CNAT. So the cards that are picked the earliest have the lowest ALSA values. So if something has an ALSA 1, it means it's always picked pick 1. So the best bombs in the format usually ha tend to have ALSAs close to 1. Cards that have ALSAs like 8 or higher means they off like pretty much always wheel. So those are going to be picked later on. And so if we just think about ALSA values, it tells us what is valued by the community. If something has a low ALSA and it's picked early it's valued by the community. If something's picked later on and people don't pick it very early, it's less valued by the community. But where we get to see what's over and underrated is when we compare ALSA with Game in Hand win rate. So Game in Hand win rate is sort of the golden poster child of telling us how well a card actually performs because anytime it's drawn, it then takes that data, whether or not that, that card was part of a winning game or a losing game. So it doesn't just look if it was cast, but it tells you in the aggregate whether or not it actually contributes to winning any time that card is drawn in a game. 
So that's why we look at game in hand win rate to look at the overall values of cards. And it gives a pretty good idea of that. So then what Doragon did was rank every single card from game in hand win rate from best to worst, and then found the difference from those ranked game in hand win rate positions and the also positions to get the difference in the overall set. So basically ranking it from one to 300 in this set. Um, if something didn't have a game in hand win rate because there was not enough data on it, then those were excluded. So that was the way that it was seen what was most over or underrated. Because if something had a really low ELSA value and was picked very early, but had a poor game in hand win rate, that means it's a very overrated card. If something has a very high ELSA value and is picked later, but also has a high win rate, it means it's a very underrated card. So I'm going to go down the overrated cards, but you're going to see a trend here. I'm just going to kind of describe the cards very briefly because I'm more interested in the underrated because that's where we can get an edge. But if we look at the overrated cards, the number one overrated card in the set is Mind's Eye. So Mind's Eye is that five mana artifact. When your opponent draws a card, you can pay one to draw a card too. It's kind of this clunky, do nothing, eventually you draw some cards. Uh, card People pick it really highly and it has a poor win rate. So it's the most overrated card. Second to that, it's Tarissian Mindbreaker. It's that seven mana six four that attacks and mills your opponent and has unearth. People pick it really highly. It does not win games. The third one, Urza Lord Protector. That's the three mana two four that makes your spells cheaper and it can meld with the Planeswalker, but that doesn't really come up. So a three mana two four, right? Uh, has minor ability. It looks really splashy. It looks really cool. Picked really highly, not a good win rate. We also have Urza's Silex, that's that wipe the board card. Psychosis Crawler is that five mana artifact that has power and toughness equal to the number of cards in your hand. Oftentimes, you're just dumping your hand, so it's not very good. We have Mishra, Tamer of Makfawa, the one that uh, lets you unearth your artifacts and gives your cards ward protection where your opponent's sacrificing to it. We have Mystic Forge, the one that lets you cast your artifacts off the top of your deck. That one, I'm like, maybe it's just being put in the wrong spots. But still, it's being picked really highly, and then people aren't playing it with enough artifacts. Cage Sun is that six mana uh, artifact. Gives plus one, plus one to a certain color of creatures, and your lands tap for double that mana. Again, like, just not a good fit for this set. A lot of your creatures aren't even the color that they are because of the fact of being artifacts. We have Staff of Domination. Looks like a really fun card does not actually perform very well, even if there's infinite combos in the set. And then lastly, one with the multiverse, that eight mana enchantment that helps you draw a bunch of extra cards and play them for free. It's an eight mana do nothing enchantment when it first comes down. So if we think about it, it makes sense why all these cards are overrated. They all kind of don't affect the board very much, or they do in awkward ways, like we talked about the Wrath of God with Urza's Silex. It's kind of slow, kind of awkward. It sits there. And with Unearth, you can wipe the whole board, and then your opponent can still just attack you with all their Unearth creatures. So it's kind of in an awkward spot with this format. Or cards that look very powerful, but actually just end up being kind of clunky. Like if you look at Cage Sun, you're like, wow, that seems really strong. I'm pumping my whole team. I'm making all this extra mana. Just not actually what this format is about. It doesn't really work. And so you can see it's like a bunch of rares that people pick really early that end up being overrated. We tend to not have as much experience with those rares, so people want to try them out. So my guess is these overrated cards probably are going to stay overrated, and it doesn't matter as much for us 
as limited players to know those specifics. What might be fun moving forward, what I can maybe do on the next podcast, is talk about the overrated commons and uncommons, just so we know kind of what to avoid and what to not pick early, because they might look like the good cards, but actually don't contribute to positive win rates. So that could tell us what we want to look for um, in the future. If we want to keep this under overrated kind of strategy going, something I'll think about for next time. But we have plenty to talk about today with the underrated cards. So the number 10 most underrated card is Mishra's Research Desk. That's the one mana artifact that you can pay one, tap, sacrifice it. You can look at the top two cards, pick one. You have till the end of your next turn to play it. And also has unearth one and a red. This card just kind of does it all, and I've been super impressed with it. It gives you the artifact triggers. It gives you the sacrifice triggers. It combos with the best color in the set with these red aggressive decks. It helps with the low curve nature of the format. You can pay in installments. You could mill it for value and unearth it. It really just does everything. And it's like a built-in card advantage machine that still is not overly expensive while actually contributing to synergies itself. It's a cheap artifact that you could sacrifice to your Pendragon Strong Bulls. Every time Mishra's research desk comes down, it's like, it just does enough. It's not overly powerful. And again, on these underrated cards, it's not necessarily saying they have the absolute best win rate, but relative to when they're being picked they provide the highest win rate for that position. So you're going to actually see Mishra's research desks later in packs than you might some other cards. And it might be an indication that at that point, you actually want to take that card because it is actually quite good. Number nine is an interesting one, one that actually surprises me. It's actually Burrowing Razor Maw. That's the two in a green four two. And when it dies, you mill four. I don't think of this card as being particularly good, but we can think about how it does have applications. It is cheap. It can be aggressive. It can also trade up on defense, and it can kind of be that glue piece for some of these green-black self-mill decks that we're looking at. If we also think about aggressive decks being really good right now and cheap interaction being key, Brewing Razor Maw can actually do a lot of good work in a deck where like, you play it on three, your opponent plays something to stabilize, you epic confrontation it, turning into a 5-4, trading up maybe on mana, taking down their 3-3, hitting them for 5. I could see that doing a lot of work there. And it also has some of those synergies in the format that we talked about. There's a lot of things that care about things going to your graveyard. And right now, if some of the unearth cards are still being underdrafted, then Burn Razor Moss self-milling helps fuel that. You can pick those unearth creatures pretty highly. So you're going to get a lot of those because people are still undervaluing them a little bit. And the Razor Moss is going to help fuel that. Now, notably, and a little bit of a spoiler... Those cards like Scrapwork Mutt, Scrapwork Cohort, they're less underrated than they were before. Used to be you could get them really, really, really late. People have caught on, and so they're not on this list anymore. But that's okay. You still know those cards are good. So you take those early, and you combo with the underrated card, Burrowing Razor Maw. Because again, you don't want to take this card early. But when it wheels, it might actually have a home in your deck. It might actually be a piece of the puzzle here. Number eight. Number eight is Gix's Caress. Gix's Caress is the two in a black. You look at your opponent's hand, you take a non-land card from it, and you make a Power Stone. So Gix's Caress is an interesting one because it's not really a card you want to just overload your deck with. It's oftentimes punishing to take turn three off in this format to not really impact the board. But if you're impacting the board in a way where that Power Stone is going to help catch you up and you had played something maybe the turn before or you're still aggressive and Gix's Caress is just a piece of the puzzle to maybe nab your opponent's bomb or disrupt their threats or help 
sort of sculpt your game plan, how you're going to be able to push through some final damage, it actually can be an okay card. And you also don't have to play it immediately on turn three. It's probably best in a mid-range deck when you play it on turn three and ramp into something. But even these aggressive decks, like if you're like a green-black attack a deck, uh, you can actually play like two drop, three drop, four drop, play your Gix's Crest on, on turn five after that and nab like the best thing that your opponent's building to at that point. So it actually has some flexibility, even though it seems like you just want to play it on turn three. It can either help ramp something or come down right before your opponent plays a big bomb. The data supports it just being an overall good card. I'm a little wary of it when you are like the most aggressive. It doesn't always have a home, but it is kind of a two for one if you care about power stones. Um, and a bunch of those other cards that are two for ones that care about power stones are really high picks. I mean, if we look at Excavation Explosion, which is obviously a better card than this, it's like the top common in the set, right? Two and a red um, to deal something through and make a tap power stone. That's a two for one that generates a power stone, impacts the board. Now, Gix's Caress affects it from their hand, but it still has that two for one nature that the explosion has as well. So just something to think about. So maybe you want to be playing that more than you would right now. Just know that it is underrated. Ooh, this next one is one that's awesome and is still underrated at this moment. It's Gaia's Gift. So Gaia's Gift is the one green trick that basically gives keyword soup abilities and puts a plus one plus one counter on your creature. It protects it, gives it reach, gives it trample, um, kind of does it all, gives it hexproof, gives it that indestructible. So basically just make sure your creature survives and notably giving reach on defense, trample on offense does a lot. And also I think here it has the win rate it does because your opponents are just going to block early in this aggressive format. The thing is the creature sizing is still kind of small. Like it's a lot of two twos trading with each other. Sometimes two twos, you know, rumbling with two threes or three threes, but there's not a ton of like four toughness creatures because those creatures just cost a lot of mana. And so those creatures by default get punished in this format. So what that means is that Gaia's Gift is often going to win an immediate combat, but make the creature sizing the next tier up that your opponent now has to deal with. So if you turn your 2-2 into a 3-3, you've actually just entered an entirely new weight class in this specific format. Whereas normally, like going to a 2-2 or a 3-3, it's a change, but like it's not like a huge change and your opponent can still just like double block it. In this format, because it is so aggressive and you're just running past each other, Gaia's Gift is great on turn two when your opponent blocks, or if you ha if you do happen to land something big, like you have a couple of the better prototype creatures in your deck, it can help protect those as well. Like if you have the Boulder Branch Golem, comes down, you gain your six, your opponent double blocks your six five the next turn, boom, Gaia's Gift, you trample over for some damage, you're left with the seven six, it's awesome in that spot. So it's just very good at every point in the game and is a combat trick that should be respected, but it's still underrated. So you can actually get them a little bit later and it's gonna to contribute to winning a lot, a lot, a lot. Number six, and maybe a card people should respect more, and I'm noting it right now because I probably need to up it a bit in my pick order, Sibling Rivalry. Three and a red to steal an artifact or creature until the end of turn and make a power stone. There's just an inordinate amount of sacrifice synergies you can put together in this set that makes Sibling Rivalry just an incredible card. And you also can just be really aggressive in your red decks and Sibling Rivalry is still going to be great. The other nice thing is that getting that Power Stone helps bridge the gap in some of these red decks because normally think of like Power Stones as more of this ramp strategy. But oftentimes you have some places to put the that Power Stone mana or 
use it as a resource to your Pendragon Strongbowls. That sibling rivalry just kind of does it all. It's very good also at helping to cast Mishra's Juggernaut, uh, which is just this fantastic card for these red aggressive decks. It unearths, it hits really hard, and it also sometimes will bridge to Blitz Automaton in the 6-4 haste mode. So sibling rivalry can do that. And then if you're trading blows back and forth and you steal their key blocker, and get everything else through on one turn, Sibling Rivalry often just going to be the last card that's cast in any given game. So yes, Sacrifice, which is everywhere in the format, makes Sibling Rivalry better. But when you're aggressive enough, I think it's just a good card, and the stats prove that here. So it's the number six underrated card. Number five, and a card I've come up way, 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 way up this week, Bitter Reunion. Bitter Reunion is one in a red enchantment. When it comes into play, you can discard a card to draw two. And then you can pay one, sacrifice it to give all your creatures haste until end of turn. This is just like the beautiful, most gluey glue piece that happens to exist. It smooths your draws early. It combos with some of the draw two shenanigans. Like um, there's the Gurmag Anointer, that one three flyer that grows when you draw cards. So I had that with the Bitter Reunion. You could even pitch a small creature to the Bitter Reunion when you grow the Anointer so that it returns the creature when it dies. And... The sacrifice haste mode is really, really threatening. It doesn't actually look that good. But again, we, we look at the aggressive format of this nature. Just at any point, being able to give haste to everything means your opponent has to respect you playing something to the board and attacking. And they need to have creatures of various size to be able to respect that. It helps you win races. It combos with Goblin Blast Runners, which just grow in size to the sacrifice. Play a couple of those sacrifice it they'll get menace they'll get haste it's just super good for this unassuming common and so bitter reunion i've been really happy playing like two of these in my red decks as long as i care about all the different pieces and it's not hard to synergize with them it's just been an excellent card people aren't picking it right now it kind of looks like thrill of possibility which was actually a decent card in domino united but this is like even better than that so something to keep an eye out for something you want to be playing in your red decks actively want to be playing Number four is one that I haven't been playing, but apparently is very good and it's being underrated. So I guess I'm guilty on that one. Moment of Defiance. So Moment of Defiance is the two in a black instant. It gives your creature plus two plus one and lifelink till in a turn and you draw a card. So Moment of Defiance, it does combo again with the, those draw two plans. But also what it tells me is that this format is about aggression and racing and the lifelink swings on Moment of Defiance are just really big. So anytime the creature sizings match up, Moment of Defiance is going to help win that. You do have to be a little bit careful. It is on the expensive side for a combat trick. So if your opponent's able to disrupt that, um, you can get two for one kind of easily with the Moment of Defiance. But in the times where you don't, it's often going to be like an eight to 10 point life swing, maybe help you win a combat, just changes the course that the game was going. It's a little bit worse. Like if the format slows down, I think Moment of Defiance loses a little bit of its luster. But right now, where you're just like running past each other, um, Moment of Defiance is that key card that helps win the aggro races. And if the creature sizing matches up exactly, helps you win, win a combat two for one, gain some life. So it's a card probably you want to be playing one of in most of your black decks just because it is so underrated right now. It is a card you probably want to uh, play. And because we want to talk about having more of an assertive plan, Moment of Defiance is going to slot into those decks very well. If your deck's on the slower side in a black deck, I don't know that I would recommend playing this card because as a reactive spell, you're just asking to get blown out a lot. So not great there. 
But in general, I could see it being very, very powerful and something you'd actually want to play. Number three, and this is the only blue card to make the list, is Desynchronize. So Desynchronize is the four and a blue. Put a creature either on the top or the bottom of the owner's library, their choice, and scry two. Just a pretty good card overall. It looks a little clunky, but it is that removal that blue can look for. Um, the only problem with it is that it is expensive. So these expensive removal spells tend to work best in already aggressive decks because they kind of end they act as a curve topper so if you think about like a blue white soldiers deck especially if it doesn't have a lot of interaction desynchronize can be perfect because you're getting on board opponent finally plays their like five six mana play you desynchronize it get it out of the way scry some extra lands that you don't need in your aggro deck to the bottom keep attacking in that spot it's beautiful it's perfect what you don't want to be doing with desynchronize is what we talked about earlier with the blue rant um, where you're like trying to ramp out some creatures, trying to kind of slow the game down because it's expensive and clunky and you don't want expensive clunky removal in decks that already have other expensive clunky things. Not to mention that that's just not a strategy you want to be engaging with at this point in the format. So if you happen to be in a blue assertive deck, be thinking about playing Desynchronize more because it actually has a pretty good win rate and people aren't picking it. So you'll probably be able to pick one up and it can be a nice little curve topper roll. If you already have great other interaction, cool, don't put it in your deck. But it can be a pretty good piece of the puzzle. The last two cards have been underrated the entire time this format has existed, which again, it's still a pretty new format, but people keep singing these cards praises and they keep being underrated. So as long as they're underrated, you should be drafting these cards on the wheel and playing them. So number two is Military Discipline. It's a single white mana for that aura. When it comes down, the creature gets plus one, plus oh, and first strike until end of turn, and then it just sticks around as that plus one, plus oh aura from there. This card is just really, really powerful. Pairs nicely with some of the prowess sub-theme in the format. Like there's um, some red prowess creatures, there's some blue prowess creatures. It's really good with those. Also, you can just attack all without worry that your opponent's going to stop you. Oftentimes what happens is like you have a bunch of two twos, your opponent's a three three, you just attack with everything and like they don't have good blocks at that point. So military discipline like allows you to just keep being aggressive in spots you wouldn't be otherwise. Also... A lot of the cheap interaction in this format does happen to be sorcery speed. So military discipline actually sometimes can work on blocks where your opponent attacks into your board and you're able to like make some block and gain a big mana advantage because it's only one mana. Anytime you eat something for one mana, getting that first strike uh, online is huge. And the plus one plus O sticking around is not anything to bat an eye at either, especially if you can get it on like a creature that already has like lifelink, trample, flying, anything like that. Military discipline is going to do a lot of work. Or if something is statted in a way where it does have a little bit more of the toughness and it got blocked, military discipline's nice there. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what creature you put it on. As long as you keep attacking with it, it's just super, super good. So something that I would recommend um, I had a nice blowout this week where I had a deck with a bunch of wing commandos. So I was able to attack in a way where military discipline could help me win two combats by pumping the wing commando with prowess. Wing commando is the two and a blue two, two flyer with prowess. So pumped that because I cast military discipline, but military discipline helped me win the combat on another creature. So it kind of acted in that way as a two for one also. So that's why I mentioned it's also a nice combo with these prowess creatures. It's really underrated. And it's kind of hard to interact with because you can just slot it in with 
you know, one mana lying around. Your mana base looks kind of innocuous. Your opponent's like, well, I don't really know. There are some blowouts. Uh, it's really bad if your opponent has Gaia's Gift because you're going to lose the first strike. Their creature's indestructible. You actually end up on the receiving end. Later in the game, if your opponent has a bunch of open mana, uh, it does open yourself up to two for ones when there's like overwhelming remorse in the format. There is uh, go for the throat. So there are some cheap ways to interact with it. Um, Machine over matter is a card I think that people are starting to play more and catching on to being pretty good. But when you're assertive enough, you can make it so your opponent doesn't really have a choice and has to block. So your game plan of attacking early and often makes the discipline itself just really, really good. And you might have guessed it. You might know what the number one underrated card is. This card is absurd. Everyone talks about how great it is. And yet people just don't pick it. I think it's just so easy to activate. Such a powerhouse. You want as many as you can get. It works in every single red deck. It's Goblin Blast Runner. Goblin Blast Runner is a single red mana for the one two at common. And as long as you've sacrificed a permanent, it gets plus two plus zero oh and menace until in a turn. It's a one drop that trades with like three drops, four drops, can't be blocked. It just combos with so many different cards so easily. It combos with Evolving Wilds, which is a land. It's not that hard to get Goblin Blast Runner decks that have like four or five Goblin Blast Runners. Because for some reason, if you're in red, other people just don't identify it as being just a good red card. So you might be the, uh, you. there might be multiple red drafters at the table. And this card is so underrated still that it will just wheel. And you'll end up with like all the Goblin Blast Runners in the table. And it gets better in multiples, not worse. Because you can play them early. And then when you sacrifice something, it's pumping all your Blast Runners. They're all getting menace. Maybe your opponent can block one of them. But they're blocking with like their two and three drops on a Blast Runner. You trade for their three drop. The other two get through for six damage. And like you've practically won the game at that point from your little one drops. And like I said, it combos with just about everything. Evolving Wilds, which is just a land that you're going to take anyways. The Mishra's Research Desk we talked about, that's underrated. Bitter Reunion is that card that's underrated. So it combos a lot with these other underrated cards. So it's really consistent to be able to get these. And while it's being underrated, I recommend like these red decks with a ton of Blast Runners as the best strategy you can get into right now. I think eventually this card is going to be recognized as just being good. And also if these other cards in the underrated list like Bitter Reunion are taken more highly in the future. Blast Runner loses a bit of value because you lose an easy sacrifice outlet. But until that point, heck, go for it. Take advantage of these underrated cards. Avoid the overrated rares. I think next week, maybe that would be good. Let's look at maybe some overrated commas and uncommons at that point. And the cool thing about this data is that I updated it so that it's as current as this podcast. So as soon as this podcast comes out, data was relevant to when it was recorded. And I can quickly go in, look at the current 17 lands data, import that and see what's being over and underrated in that spot. So in the future, I might do a quick little update like, hey, here's what's being overrated this week. Here's what's being underrated so that you're all up to date on the absolute, you know, tip top strategies so that you can be winning your brother's wars drafts. I mean, as a personal little anecdote before we, we end up in the podcast here, uh, I was really struggling with this format. At the beginning, you know, of this Thanksgiving week, I was doing a lot of streaming, doing a lot of draft videos, and really actually just was not winning that much. I was drafting kind of these slow clunky decks. The new format looks sweet in terms of like all these cool synergies you could build. But the fact of the matter is, is that these synergistic strategies and aggressive decks just end up working better. And, uh, you know, I had hit a little plateau format. And so what I did was I really had to practice what I preach, like 40 card college. What I did was I went into 17 lands 
uh, recent trophy winners. And I just started going through. I looked at, you know, what are the Diamond and Mythic players doing that they're winning with that I'm not doing right now? And it didn't take long. I probably looked at, I don't know, 10, 15 recent trophy lists to just see a common trend. Like they are playing cheap cards. They are prioritizing them in the draft and they're finding lanes to make that work. And so in my very next draft, after I looked at that, I kind of hedged on a late air marshal in pack one, which was the, um, that's the one in a blue two one. You can pay three mana to give any soldier flying. I wasn't really in position to use the air marshal, um, but I knew, hey, if I can be aggressive, then I'm going to have better results. And in packs two and three, I was past, you know, some good soldier cards, soldier enablers, ended up in a blue white soldiers deck, had two involuntary cooldowns. That's the three and a blue where you can tap two things and they get two stun counters. And I was able to just like curve out. Opponents would play some blockers. I locked them down with the involuntary cooldowns and just win from there. I was playing some military disciplines in that deck because that card's super underrated and super good. Wasn't playing in these desynchronizes, but that's on the underrated list. So I'm going to start thinking about that too. Just like using the data, seeing what other people are successful with and finding the holes in the metagame is going to be huge for your, your win percent. Because like personally, I was really, really struggling. Like I said, like it was just a very like difficult to figure out what am I, what am I doing wrong? When you are trying to improve, you have to think differently. You have to get out of your own headspace. I was playing these terrible do nothing slow decks and I had to sit back and say, what I'm doing is not working. I need to look at what people are doing, being successful with. And can I even get ahead of the curve? Can I do something to kind of go above and beyond and start to take advantage of uh, what people are not seeing in the format. So that's where I came up with this over underrated idea. I saw it from, again, Redditor Doragon. Thanks for putting in that initial work. And I realized I can actually take that initial data set that uh, Doragon came up with and I can actually update it at any point and see like what are what's the data telling me today of what's over and underrated. So I think that's like super cool, something we'll be doing in the future that we can come back to. For now, don't draft blue. If the format expands, maybe we can talk about that in the future. But that's going to do it for this show. If you're an adept tier or above, you do get a shout out. So our very first adept tier patron, I want to shout out Marius for joining this week. Thanks again. And uh, to everyone, thanks for listening. And see you next time on the 40 Card College podcast.